you know, the uh, week after a bunch of new Apple products come out is kind of a uh, interesting time because you get all the excitements of uh, new products, but then uh, not much really happens after that. But this week, you know, we've got Apple earnings. We've actually been using these new products. So, I mean, there's there's some stuff to talk about here. But before we do that, we have some housekeeping. So, Robert, what would you like to tell our audience? I'd like to tell everybody that, hey, we appreciate you. We really love that you're listening and we'd love to connect with you guys and we encourage you to find us on social. We're the Apple Circle pretty much everywhere. And also, better yet, give us a call, shoot us a text on the Apple Circle hotline number, which is 949-354-3508. You can give us a call, it'll go to voicemail, leave us your name, where you're calling from, a message, a question, a comment uh, for your chance to be featured on the next episode. Or you can even text that number with thanks to the power of the internet and Google Voice. Uh, but we'd love to connect with you guys and hear your thoughts on the Apple News for the week or help you solve a problem or help you, of course, make a, a buying decision. We'd love to spend your money. So we'll be more than happy to help <laughs> you uh, figure out your next Apple purchase. But uh, definitely uh, give us a call or text on that number. Yeah, and make sure if you enjoy these episodes, and again, we appreciate everyone who listens, but if you do, give it a five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's pretty much the only metric we have, and the more five stars we get, the more people will listen, and you know, it's greatly appreciated. But, uh, you know, like I said, we've had these new products for, you know, a little over a week now or about exactly a week. You have the SE, I have the SE. You've actually started using it. It has been my daily phone since it came out a week ago. What are your initial thoughts now that you've been using it and and you know kind of the initial news press has kind of died off? You know, I was thinking about this today and I think there's a couple different ways to look at it. I think that as tech connoisseurs, you and I and many of you listening, we obviously have experienced other things like if you have experienced an iPhone with Face ID, then this is a very different experience. There's a lot of things that I caught myself missing. Um, you know, the screen size was one thing with the bezels and just you know the lack of like Face ID. Like I'd open one password and I forget. Oh, I actually have to put my my thumb on the Touch ID sensor. Or I have to um, you know hit the button to go back home. I can't swipe up just to go back. There was little things like that. But then I had to remind myself that, you know what, most people who are upgrading to this phone are probably coming from an 8 or a 7 or a 6 or 6S, you know, down the line. This is probably normal to them. So I, I kind of caught myself uh, not trying to, you know, look at things from, oh, what a downgrade from the 10S or 11 or wh whatever that is, but to appreciate what it is. And when you look at it that way, then I think it's really nice. You know, the screen is fantastic. Um, the camera is good really great. Um, there has been, you know, very little that I've disliked about it, except the battery, which I'm sure we'll get into and talk about, which has actually been really surprising. Um, but, you know, general thoughts are, it's really nice. It's like the perfect one-handed phone. It's just, I find myself, it's actually easier for me to almost type on this phone than it is the 11 Pro for whatever reason. I just like, I'm so still used to like that smaller 4.7 inch display. Um, but you know, all in all, I really like it. Going back to the touch, uh, going back to touch ID is very weird, but I do like it. I do notice, and maybe I don't know if you have this issue too. Like, there's like some weird, like uh, I, I tend to blame more iOS 13 kind of weird, like sloppiness. Like I noticed because I did a restore for my 11 Pro that, like, if I was to slide down to 
or actually slide up rather to get to control center, there's like apps that are like half or not even apps. There's like icons that are like half cut off and I have to like swipe up uh, to reveal more and just like weird stuff like that, that maybe that's just normal for the screen says, but I'm just not used to just, it's definitely been an adjustment to transition back to this display. Not that it's a bad display, but when you go from a different phone, especially a phone that has a larger display to this one, it's really different. So my initial thoughts aside, Matt, what do you think? You've, you've used this as your daily for a week. I've used this as my daily just since today, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the sloppiness, I haven't really noticed that too much, but what I've noticed that it definitely seems iOS 13 and the latest versions of iOS are definitely designed for that bigger mm-hmm. edge-to-edge screen. What's interesting is like going back, this is just how it's always been. Like the control center, I noticed that too, that I would have to scroll down and it was kind of cut off, but that that's normal. That's been like that. Yeah. Um, What's interesting to me is that you do have to swipe up for control center. I, I still don't really understand why you don't do it from the top right. Like, what's the difference? I get that there's no notch, but why do you have to swipe from the bottom? It's kind of weird. That's definitely the probably the biggest transition I've had to do. But I mean, I haven't noticed really any slop. Luckily, it still performs pretty well and everything. I, I've said it many times here. What's interesting is, is this a cool phone because it's the smallest iPhone or is it the cheapest iPhone? I think this one definitely is the cheapest, but we just saw Tim Cook say today, you know, that the reason people are buying this is at least a, a fair number of people. It's because it's the smallest phone, which is kind of interesting that the Apple's actually thinking of this 2020 iPhone SE version as a small phone. But like you said, like using it in one hand is actually very usable. I agree. It's way easier for me to type, especially with one hand. I do miss the bigger screen. And again, like you said, it's because I'm used to the bigger screen. I'm, I've am i been okay with, with this smaller 4.7 inch screen. And I think the quality of it and everything is fine. I actually, I've been one of those people that haven't cared about the, you know, fuzziness of the like 720p screen. I, I've never cared about that. But this is the first time where I've actually really noticed it. And it, it I wouldn't say it bothers me, but every time I use this screen, I'm, I'm fairly aware that it's a 720p kind of suboptimal panel. But besides that, like once you get over it in day to day, like <laughs> what you actually use it for is all fine. But I think we should talk about battery life for a second. There's this kind of uh, interesting way to think about it. It's a small battery physically. It's less than 2,000 milliamp hours, which today in a phone is crazy. That is tiny. I mean, we're looking at like this OnePlus or the Samsung Galaxy S20 Ultra. The Samsung Galaxy S20 Ultra has a 5,000 milliamp hour battery. That is insane compared to this iPhone SE. So on one hand, you would expect the battery life to not be very good, but you know, you have the power efficiency gains of the A13 chip, which you would think maybe, yeah, it's not going to be the best battery life in the world, but you would think it'd be better than the iPhone eight, even though Apple doesn't claim that to be the case, but you, you kind of have this weird divide. If you're using the phone kind of normally, at least is the way I found it. If you're using the phone normally for browsing the web, browsing Twitter, Instagram, that kind of stuff. The battery lasts quite a normal amount of time. Like you can get through a day pretty much no problem, at least for me. But the moment you start to actually do anything that's intensive, it kills the battery faster than I've ever seen on really any other phone. Like you can almost watch the battery percentage tick down. Have you noticed that kind of same idea? Yeah, I have. And what's weird is I was telling Matt right before we started, you know, I wanted to start to use this, you know, way more than just, um, you know, general testing. So we kind of have like a standard like, you know, Apple Circle, like, 
profile for phones that we'll just throw on that doesn't have much. Uh, so I decided to do a restore this morning and really get everything from my 11 Pro on there. And I did the restore at about 9.30 this morning. It was plugged in doing it. It was 100% charged. Uh, and here we are now, what, six hours later? maybe a little bit more and I've like just generally used the phone like not much I've picked it up a little bit to watch like two or three YouTube videos I've taken a couple of phone calls done some texts general stuff like that and I'm sitting here at 62% battery life which is crazy to me because with the same use case on the 11 Pro and this is not the the Pro Max the smaller one I'd be at 85 so it's definitely significantly um, draining or more noticeably draining faster than uh, the 11 Pro. And like you said, I'm just doing just basic things on there. I haven't really like, you know, sat down at night to, to watch a lot of YouTube videos or anything. Um, so that's been interesting. And also another point which has been uh, kind of, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, is the battery percentage. And I, I was a huge um, lover of the battery percentage on phones. I'd love to have that on all the iPhones until... It was, it was the 10, right? They, they just like, yep. there wasn't enough room to yep. do that. So obviously we, we didn't get that anymore. But now to have this back on the smaller display, I find myself constantly checking. And I don't know if that's because I just know the battery life isn't very good. So I'm like really curious to see what it is. Or if there's just like, I, I just generally like want to keep an eye on it. But um, having that there is definitely... I wouldn't say caused more battery anxiety. It's not like range anxiety in an electric car, but it definitely has made me more aware of what the battery is uh, than just having it off. So we've seen a lot of reports that this is like kind of a, not a widespread thing, but a normal thing. And that just really surprises me for a phone that, you know, is not a flagship from Apple, but Apple typically never cuts corners and battery life on iPhones is never known to be bad. And this isn't bad, but it's surprisingly meh i'd say i don't know matt do you, would you consider this bad battery life or just subpar battery life going back to that battery percentage thing on the 11 and the 11 pro you can check the battery percentage you just have to swipe down to look mm-hmm. at it and i do find myself checking it pretty often like i just want to know what my battery life is but you know it's interesting because when i look at the battery usage when you go into settings and actually look at your screen on time my average screen on since i got this phone is four and a half hours which is I mean, it's not that different than what I have with my 11 Pro because I'm an, I'm a heavy user, so it's it's really not that different. And I mean, it's less. It's not so much worse that my perception of how bad this battery is matches, if that makes any sense. Like, I think it's definitely more of a I'm just noticing it more because I'm using the phone so much right now. And I guess it kind of goes back to the rest of this phone, like for who this is marketed for, I don't know if it matters too much. Now, it would be interesting to see Apple release a battery case for this. I mean, presumably they already have it existing because the iPhone 7 had a battery case. This is basically that same design. They maybe changed the camera shape a little bit for the iPhone 8, and I don't think they ever had... They never had a battery case for the iPhone 8, right? I don't think so. I don't think so, no. Yeah, so I mean, they might have to tweak it just a little bit, but they should basically have that battery case ready to go. So... Since this is looking to be a very popular phone, I wouldn't be surprised to see Apple release the battery case for that. I wouldn't say it's bad battery life. It's just more if you're looking for a phone because of battery life, this is not the way to go. Yeah, and that just, I don't know, it's just surprising. And like you said, maybe just, you know, for the for the person who's buying this, it's not a huge thing. I mean, I think that everybody's general consensus is if I can get through a day, if I can take it off the charger in the morning and put it on the charger when I go to bed, if it can last me that long, then that's okay. Uh, and so what is your general, um, 
when you go to bed, what's the battery at? Is it dead? Did you have to charge it? Or is it usually still at like say 10, 15%? It really depends. Like I've found myself lately, lately, I've only had the phone for a week, but like, like in the last half week, I've been finding myself charging it in the middle of the day just because the days before, like when I first had the phone, I would get ready to go to bed and I would be like fighting the phone to stay awake or stay alive. It was basically in the tens of percentage. So like I could make it throughout a day, but I would definitely be noticing that I had to watch what I was doing on my phone. Otherwise it wouldn't have to. So right now, since, you know, we're working at home, I've just been leaving it on the wireless charger or plugging it in. And that basically solved the problem. So like right now my phone's at 93% and it's 4 PM. <laughs> it's cause I just, I put it on the wireless charger while I was doing other stuff and didn't really think about it. And I think that's kind of what most people's use case will be. Honestly, like if you work in an office or you work where somewhere we can plug in your phone, like just do that. And then that basically just, you know, eliminates any worry of battery life. This kind of, like you were saying, it kind of goes back to range anxiety in your electric car. If you have a place to charge it either at home or at work, like you're never going to think about it because you just always have a place to charge it. That kind of goes with the phone. I, I guess where the problem comes in is if you can't charge it. So, you know, if you're in that situation, maybe this isn't the best phone for you. Yeah. I'm really curious to see too, like, because we're all still at home, once things go back to normal and people are out and about, I'm curious to see what the impact is on battery life when you're on LTE for a longer period of time, because obviously we can go out and about now, but we're not out for any significant amount of time. What's it like on a commute and what's it like, um, you know, in transit? I'm really curious to see if that has any effect on battery as well, but I guess we're just going to have to wait and see on that. But it's been interesting. I think that with battery aside, which is a big concern and obviously something that needs to be addressed, but with that aside, it's, I think what, by all accounts, a really great value. I mean, $400 gets you a lot. And one week later we can confirm after using it, it's a tremendous value for 400 bucks. I think the fact that that's our biggest complaint is the battery life, which if you just look at the milliamp hours of the battery, you can pretty much guess exactly what the story is going to be. And it's, it's really not any different than that. So it, the fact that that's the biggest issue I think is a good thing. I mean, like besides that, the phone is great. I, you know, I guess we can kind of talk about camera a little bit. It's definitely by far, like if you're looking at this price range for a phone, it has the best video on any phone of mm -hmm. this price range, like not even close photos. On the other hand, like I personally, I liked the way iPhones process photos. So uh, and I, you know, I, I am a photographer, so I, I, I have an eye for these kind of things, like for details and I can pixel peep without even pixel peeping, if that makes sense. So I see the differences, but there's an argument to be had that other phones in this price range are competitive. Yeah. I think for me, just generally taking photos, I do miss the ultra wide and the telephoto just to have that versatility though. You're correct. Like the video on this, like for $400, you could almost replace, don't buy a camcorder, buy this, or don't buy a point and shoot. I mean, for 400 bucks, even if you just wanted to have this as your point and shoot camera that could take photos or videos, this is a much better alternative than what you could get, um, you know, from something at Best Buy. Uh, but the photos and videos are fantastic. I love, um, you know, the HDR, obviously, and photos and videos is great. We talked about this last week, you know, it's very similar to an iPhone 8, but the iPhone 8 did not have Smart HDR. Now you have version 2 of Smart HDR in the new SE, which is, you know, vastly improved over uh, what, you get, what you'd get in older phones. So that's a big deal. Uh, are you at all disappointed, Matt, that there is no night mode in this phone? And 
did we know that night mode was relying on multiple cameras? I guess that makes sense to capture more light, but do you are are you surprised that it's not more reliant on the A13? I mean, as far as far as I'm aware, it's not reliant on multiple cameras, right? It's reliant on that bigger sensor and the bigger lens. Because when you're using the iPhone 11 Pro or the 11, when you want to do night mode, if you go into the uh, telephoto camera, it still does night mode, but it actually uses the main camera and just crops it in because mm. it actually gives you a better result. And it, I think the idea behind that is that the main camera is just going to give you the best photo. It lets the most light in. So that in combination with the A13 will give you this crazy night mode, which I think on the iPhone is one of the best you can get. So I, I guess when you look at it like that, it makes sense that you can't do it on the SE because it has, this is now confirmed. I don't, I don't think we had this confirmed last time we talked, but it is now confirmed that it is the same exact hardware as the iPhone 8. So same sensor, same lens, which is not bad because you can clearly see just throwing the A13 in there makes a huge, huge difference mm -hmm. with photos. Um, but I'm not entirely surprised. It, it, it's just, it seems like there's a way to do it. Maybe Apple just has to totally re-engineer how they would do it. So that's why they didn't, they didn't like, they didn't put the effort into it because the whole name of the game with the SE is cheap. Yeah. So I, I kind of get it on one hand. Um, but if there's one place where this phone really lacks, it is the, the dark mode or night mode, I guess, whatever it's called. Yeah. And again, I guess you just have to have your expectations realistic. I mean, for $400, like you could not pixel P, but almost like to use that phrase, like in every aspect of the phone, you could nitpick, I guess, and like find, oh, it can't do this, it can't do that, it can't do this. But remember, $400 for this phone, and you're comparing it to phones that are double the price. Yeah, it's not going to have some of those things. But where it matters from most of, you know, the highlight flagship features, it has all those things. It has the A13 processor, it has a great screen, it has a great camera uh, for the one camera that it has. So, I guess we, we all got to cut it some slack and, you know, remember its price, like you said, but definitely. So here's the question, though, that I'm just thinking about right now. So Google's Pixel 4 is now slashed the prices. It's now $499 for the brand new Pixel 4, which is the latest phone from Google. So, I mean, in, in a way, it's almost like you're getting the iPhone 11 for $499. And it's that kind of comparison. Apple's, this is Google's <laughs> latest phone. Uh, iOS aside, you know, iOS versus Android aside, do you think there is an argument to be had that for a hundred bucks more, the Pixel 4 is the way to go if you're just looking for like the best bang for your buck? I honestly think that might be the way to go. Now, obviously, iOS versus Android is a huge debate, but assuming you're one of these people that just doesn't care, you're, you just want the best, you know, hardware. There's an argument to be had there. You have an excellent screen, much better than the SE, and a great camera. It, it doesn't do video quite as well, surprisingly. You know, this $400 iPhone SE is going to be outperforming the Pixel 4, which is the latest flagship from Google, but it's not bad video. I actually think it's some of the better video on a phone. Um, you get that telephoto camera. You get, I think, a you know, it's not a flashy design, but it's not any more boring than the iPhone SE design. You get face unlock. I mean, it has so many awesome features. It also has horrible battery life, just like the iPhone <laughs> SE. So like, is there an argument here? I mean, it's kind of hard. I, the more I think about it, it's hard to get away from the iOS versus Android, but 
I think there's an argument to be had here. Well, so that's a really great point. I will say that I was writing, we're doing a, a video on the John Rettinger channel, um, the Samsung A51 versus the iPhone SE. They're both $400 phones, you know, put your allegiances aside, you know, which one is the better value. And as I'm writing the script for this, I have a Pixel 4, which is usually the Android phone I, I tend to go back to. And I'm holding both. And I have to say, you know, when you think about build quality, the iPhone SE just in terms of build quality, feels just as premium as the highest-end flagship phone from Google that before this price cut was, what, near a 1000 bucks. I mean, isn't it crazy that Apple's cheapest phone has the same, if not arguably better build quality than one of the flagship, um, you know, Android devices? Um, but with that, that aside, I think that you make a great point, and I agree with you that if you're in it for the specs, if you're looking for the best bang for your buck, then yeah, for 100 bucks, the Pixel 4s is going to give you a lot more value. I mean, if you're going to hang on to this phone for three years and you want to split that $100 between three years, you pay, what is that, like 30 bucks ish a year more, if you want to think about it that way, yeah, you're going to get $30-ish more value a year, 100%. But I guess the bigger question to that is, for this price point, is that a factor for people? If you're someone who is dead set on getting the most value for your dollar, or you have higher preferences in the person with the SE, because here's like what I'm thinking. My grandma is not going to go into the store and look and see all the different phones and look at the specs between the different phones or let the salesperson go between this and this, but you can get this for $100 more. She wants to go with what she's comfortable with. She knows iOS. She likes iOS. She's in the iOS ecosystem. And I think for her, the SE is a great way to get a new phone for the cheapest amount of money. It is the cheapest iPhone you can get that's brand new right now, which makes a lot of sense. I think that if you're invested in getting the cheapest phone possible with the best specs, you're willing to put in the work and maybe you're not so allegiant to OS. I think that's commendable, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like the person who the SE is targeted for, they are not the person that is going to possibly go to Android. This seems like someone who's locked in iOS typically or is coming from Android that's like, you know what? I want something different. I want the cheapest iPhone. I, I don't really want to deal. Even for $100 more, I could get this Pixel 4 that has all this stuff, but I don't care. I just want the cheapest iPhone. Is that the is that the audience of this phone, or do you think the people going to the SE are a little more tech-savvy and they're really going to it because they see the value for the price? I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but you kind of no, get, get what I'm what saying? saying? Yeah. yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I, I agree, though. I think people who are getting this phone for the most part, of course, there's always those in-betweens, but for the most part, it's I want an iPhone and this is the cheapest one, so let's get it. And, you know, kind of actually contrary to that, like even today in the uh, earnings call or whenever this earnings call was, uh, Tim Cook said that they actually expect the SE to attract more Android users because of either the price or the specs and everything. Like the thing that Android has going for it is the cheap phones. Now that there's a cheap iPhone, there's even less reason to get that cheap Android phone for a lot of people. Like whether you like it or not, at least especially in the United States, but iPhones have a certain amount of status and that, I mean, you can hate on it, whatever, whatever you want to feel about that. It is just kind of the truth. So being able to get more people to get an iPhone, again, this this phone's going to kill it. And you got to remember, like, if you're listening to this podcast, we are 
we are tech savvy. We care about this stuff. We are invested and we are interested. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to get the most out of your your money and your hard-earned dollar. That totally makes sense. But I feel like for the people going into the store, like just the average person that walks into the store, more and more these days, probably this is more the case than it was five years ago, I feel like people do have a preference. Obviously, on the tech side, we have diehard iOS versus Android debates. But I feel like for the average person, for the most part, there is a preference. Someone either will go for the iPhone or go for Android. And I feel like everybody has a preference these days, which I think is why the SE makes so much sense. And, you know, I guess kind of going on from the SE, you know, like we said, the, the biggest thing here is that price. So we're, we're getting word of the iPhone 12 lineup and what that price is going to be. And since there is going to be a new version of of the iPhone 12, this smaller version, which think of it as if the iPhone 11 of today had a smaller version of the iPhone 11. So a 5.4 inch instead of the 6.1 inch. And that is actually gonna be $50 cheaper than what our current cheapest flagship quote unquote iPhone is. What do you think about that? I, I've seen a lot of uh, kind of word and talk on the, on the internet about this is like a price cut. And in my opinion, I'm like, not really like it's just a smaller i mean it makes sense that this would be a cheaper phone but i guess the reason this is news i guess is because these phones are all expected to have oled displays so you're getting a better technology a better screen and you're going to be able to get it for cheaper so there's an argument there but 649 for a brand new flagship iphone with presumably all of the new features that that's that's not a bad price at all you know it's interesting too because apple is a company known for you know, wanting to make money. Apple knows how to make money very well. And typically they will charge a little bit more because they're going to make more money on it. You're paying the Apple premium for a reason. So I think it's super interesting if this is true that, you know, we saw them lower the price from the 10R to the 11. It, it got dropped by 50 bucks. And if this is true, then you'd have a new lower starting price tag of $50 more. It's a great thing to see all of this, um, these flagship features make it to this lower end phone. And I guess that's something that Apple should be, you know, commended for. I guess that they're hedging their bets that, you know, we could make more money if we charged more, but the odds are if we charge $50 less, we'll sell more phones that would make up for what we were to make if we sold these phones at, you know, what is it, $700? Like, I guess, obviously, there are analysts inside of Apple saying, okay, this is how many phones we're going to sell if we price it like this, and, you know, here's what the... um the operating costs are and all that stuff. So that makes sense. Well, and I, I wonder what their profit margins on this is going to be, because like I said, this is now going to be an OLED display, which costs, it's going to cost more than an LCD display for sure. So, I mean, right now the cheapest OLED display you can get from Apple is a thousand dollars. So cutting that all the way down to 649, I mean, the rest of the phone is not going to be that different than what we have now. Price-wise, it, yeah, it's going to be the newer features, but like the materials, the design, all that kind of stuff is not going to be that different than kind of the situation we're in now. So I wonder what that's going to do to their margins. They, like you said, there's got to be some, you know, strong evidence that this is a great way to go because Apple uh, loves their margins. Well, here's a question for you, Matt, that just popped into my mind. And Apple wouldn't typically do this, but this is interesting. So obviously, there's a a way for Apple to increase their profit margins and still be able to slash 
prices on phones if they're able to bring more components in-house. And we know that Apple does their best to bring everything in-house. We know that they bought Intel's um, cell modem division to do their own 5G. All these components usually, like more and more are getting pushed in-house. But do you think there's any chance that Apple is kind of doing the Tesla model, whereas will make something a little more expensive to eventually bring that price down. Like that's kind of how it started with the iPhone 10. We're going to make it a little more expensive to bring price down. And then obviously we know that they're making, I mean, they're making crazy money on the iPhone SE. It must be close to all profit roughly because you've got the same case. You've got the same parts pretty much as the iPhone 8. Do you think that there's almost they're doing or they could potentially cut costs of the 12 because the iPhone SE is making them so much money. They're kind of taking what they would have made from the SE in a sense and using that those extra funds to cut prices on the higher end phones. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I get it from like a in theory perspective. I just don't see a company like Apple doing that. It seems like a big risk, even though, I mean, I guess it's the iPhone. So how much risk really is there? <laughs> but... I mean, yeah, that that's interesting. I've never really uh, thought of it that way. So it's basically, in a way, they're losing money on each iPhone 12, but they're gaining it from the iPhone SE. Right. And that, that's probably not the case. I mean, I'm sure Apple's making crazy money. And like we said, there's probably some cost analysis going on that we can cut 50... Uh, cut the phone by $50 because we'll sell a bunch more. So, but I, I, that just like, I don't know. I mean, like you said, Apple is probably not a company to do that, but what an interesting method is that, you know, we will sell a phone for $400 and make a bunch of money on it, but we'll use some of those funds to in turn cut some prices on the high end to make those more accessible. Probably not what Apple's doing, but it's an interesting strategy uh, yeah. if, to pretend if they were to do it. Uh, yeah, and it's not like it's something companies haven't done. Like, for instance, the Galaxy Fold from Samsung. That phone, I believe, I mean, they were losing money on each one, even though it was a $2,000 phone. So, I mean, it, it's it's kind of a question of pushing the technology forward. How much is that worth to a company and to Samsung? They're all about having everything first. So, for them, they're willing to lose money up front because they're going to get that good press. They're going to get, well, mostly good press most of the time. <laughs> um, but people are going to be talking about it. They're going to be first to the game and everyone, you know, for all of time will remember that Samsung had the first folding phone on the market, even though I guess the flex was kind of first, but you know, you know, you get what I'm saying. So it's not like there's no company that will ever do that. I just feel like Apple maybe doesn't even have to do that because even if, you know, they might be making less margins on their iPhone 12, they're still going to be making money on it. So Maybe, yeah, I can see them maybe making less margins, but even then, I, I don't know if they need to. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like if the smaller one was 700 and the larger one was 750, like no one would have batted an eye or questioned it. So it's interesting to see them bring the price down, especially since, you know, a Apple's pretty unapologetic in the stuff they do. And like, obviously they got a bunch of hate because the iPhone 10 started at $999 and $1,000 for a phone. Crazy. You know, here we are three years later and Motorola <laughs> of all companies just releases a phone that's $1,000. And to see them yeah. almost like go back a little bit and like start to bring the prices down is a very... Very, very interesting move. And I, I guess at the end of the day, it's a win for everybody. It's a win for consumers because this phone is now $50 cheaper. You get the best of the best iPhone, all the flagship features, everything new for $50 cheaper. And for many people, this is just a perfect phone for them. So it makes sense and it's a win-win. I mean, uh, 
you know, put your allegiances aside, Apple cutting prices on things and releasing a $650 iPhone 12 that has an OLED display and a $400 iPhone SE is just good for consumers. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I never uh, gave that too much thought, but it's interesting that Apple is becoming in some ways like the cheapest flagships out there. Like, like I said about the S20 Ultra, like this is a $1,500 phone. And yeah, it's got like specs to back it up, but that is a lot of money. And the fact that you can get a flagship from Apple of all people for 650, that is, I mean, that says a lot. It goes even more to the fact like, once you're getting into this flagship range, that's where I think you see a lot more cross shopping from people who are either enthusiasts or they have money to spend. They're like, I wanna spend my money well. And then you see, well, for 650, I get a brand new iPhone with all these cool features. That's, I mean, it's not lacking compared to an iPhone SE, but I can spend, you know, 1500 and get a Galaxy S20 Ultra that, I mean, basically does the same thing. So it's like, there's some definitely big competition there. I wonder, like, I, I highly doubt this is the case, but it would be so funny if Apple was like, let's make our phones really expensive for like two years. And then we're just going to drop the prices and <laughs> kill the competition. I mean, it is pretty crazy. And I guess, you know, we know that this is happening because of the components and how, you know, Apple is praised because people thought they were crazy for making their own chips. And here we are now with the A13 in a $400 phone that's running laps around $1,300, $1,400 Android phones. Uh, another question for you, Matt, kind of on this subject. So we started to hear new rumors. I think Bloomberg, uh, Mark Gurman from Bloomberg says that 2021 is the year that Apple is going to finally release an ARM-based uh, Mac. Do you think that if... Well, first off, what are your general thoughts on Apple making their own processors for computers? And do you think that, like the iPhone, because these components are in-house and they're able to work at their own pace and they're able to kind of price things a little more appropriately. This could eventually lead to a price reduction of some sort to Apple laptops. Could a MacBook Air become a 799 laptop? I think so. I mean, well, I guess really the question for me about this ARM-based computer is now that we have the iPad Pro that is basically, you know, a laptop and it does all of that. And we're expecting a lot more from iPad OS 14 in terms of like more laptop like functionality. Now that we have that, do does an ARM based Mac, like, does that really get me excited anymore? And not really, because I think there's a lot of compromises that have to happen with the ARM based Mac. Basically, all of the apps are going to have to kind of turn into iPad apps, which they're doing with whatever the project is called. I can't remember. Catalyst, um, I think, right? Cat, yeah, Catalyst. Catalyst is basically bringing iPad apps to the Mac, and you know it's kind of written into written on the wall. Like that is what it's for, is because they're going to be making this ARM-based Mac. And once, if you have a bunch of apps that already work with ARM-based processors, then the transition is going to be a lot simpler. But if we're to that point, then why not just continue the development of the iPad? which I think in a lot of ways is actually a better computer and it's more functional in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I see arguments from both sides having a bring back that 12 inch MacBook with an ARM processor, no fans. Like it, it seems like the Mac version of an iPad Pro. I would like to see it, but I wonder if like, really, I think the main thing for Apple here is that they want to get away from Intel. And the easiest way for them to do it is to just, you know, continue making these awesome processors that they're 
clearly capable of doing and bring that over to the MacBooks because once they can kill Intel from their product line, like, like you said, they like to, they like to bring everything in house. So imagine how much money they'd be saving if they don't have to work with Intel anymore. And even more importantly, I think to a lot of people is imagine all the updates we can get because right now the Macs take forever to get updated. And the main reason is because Intel is just, Intel just kind of sucks. Like they're really slow and I get it, you know, making processors is hard, but I mean, Intel's kind of slacking lately and Apple just not having to deal with them makes a lot of sense. I'm really curious to like on a performance standpoint, like what if an Apple whatever processor could be so well optimized for final cut that rendering would be like three times faster that like it's just like made to chew through video editing and encoding and final cut that would have me exciting but i think that you know this is such an interesting discussion and a problem for apple because of apps obviously first party apps is not a problem but to get people to recode or whatever the transition would be to get their apps compatible with these processors would be a challenge. And, you know, you have the advantage with iOS is it's a huge ecosystem, you know, developers are used to it, everybody's into it, it's fine. But, you know, you have enterprise software that requires certain things and you have, um, you know, different Mac apps that who knows if they'd be ported over. That would be my only concern is I, if there was like crazy performance on an Apple ARM processor, like let's say the MacBook Pro came out in three years that had this crazy powerful processor, it could chew through video and it was good to go. I wouldn't mind switching, but my concern would be apps. Like, am I going to lose out on, um, you know, some of the Mac utilities I use every day that just, they're not going to be supported? Is there going to be like this transition kind of how there was between PowerPC and Intel where this processor can almost emulate certain apps? That's going to be interesting. I'm really curious to see, but you make a good point, you know, are they like fighting two different battles? Should they just be continuing to make iPad OS better and continue to slowly phase the traditional computer out? Or should they be, you know, spending all this R&D money to make these Mac-powered processors? I don't know what the answer to that is. That's that's a tough one to uh, figure out what to do. Yeah, you. I mean, you basically said it better than I was trying to say it, but that's kind of the worry. Like, okay, if they make a transition to an ARM-based Mac, unless, like you said, they have some emulation, which I think they would have to have. Like, I don't know how they could release a Mac that wouldn't run legacy software. That That's just, I can't see that happening. Because then you have a situation like this Microsoft Surface uh, X or whatever it's called. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, you used it more than I did, but that was a horrible experience because it was an ARM-based processor that couldn't just run whatever you wanted. It had very severe limitations. Talk about that a little bit more because I think that that is exactly the worry I have of them moving over to a ARM-based Mac. I'm sure the processor is going to be great. It's going to be fast, everything. It's just all the legacy stuff. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, it didn't run 64-bit apps. It was 32-bit limited. And what was tough with that is that if you were to give that to any average consumer, like no one who had known about it, like, oh, I got you this really nice Windows tablet that also runs full-blown Windows. The hardware is great. The hardware is great. 
you try to download an app, like I think I tried to download 1Password from the 1Password website. It, you'd get the download, you'd open it up, and it would just spit out this like random error that you would have no idea what happened. It just would refuse to work. And you'd have apps that would either refuse to download, would refuse to install, that just didn't work, or you'd get apps like Photoshop, which would work, but they were so, so poorly optimized that they were almost to the point that it was unusable. And it, it the processor itself, it was a powerful ARM processor. It had like 16 gigs of RAM. Like there was no hardware limitation. It was just the software and this ARM processor were just incompatible. They just weren't working and developers weren't motivated to get their apps optimized for this. And it just, it's a mess. And even the Windows, I think the Surface Pro X today, like the hardware is great. Microsoft did a great job with it, but no one's going to use it because the apps just don't work. And if you're going to use it and just use web apps, why not just get a Chromebook or an iPad or something else that's going to work better that has better optimized apps? Because it's just a waste of money because of the app incompatibility. It's just, it's so bad. Yeah, and I mean, that thing is expensive and there's no way I can see a ARM-based Mac not being expensive. And then at that point, it's like, okay, it's got this limit, it's got these limitations, so why not just buy the MacBook Air that already exists that works and does everything I need it to do already? That's, I mean, that's kind of the question that the iPad Pro has going against it right now. It's like, it's great, but it's crazy expensive, and I know that a MacBook Air will do everything I need it to do, so why not just buy that? It's cheaper anyways. There's, I think it's mainly just a time issue. Like, I think if we could fast forward 10 years, it would all make sense. Like, oh, perfect. Like, that's exactly the way it should have been. But we're in that transition period. And it's when you're spending that much money, it's so hard to see which way is the right way to go. And I feel like Apple also has to like tiptoe between different groups because on one hand you have the average consumer who is who is mainly going to benefit from a Mac that is more like iOS but then you have the pros who the last thing they want is for their Mac to become like a giant iPhone and they like iPad OS but you know they want a computer that's a computer they don't want to have to deal with you know the merging of the two and that's where man a couple of years ago all ever anyone could talk about was I do not want the two to merge like that's a horrible idea and that's kind of where like this catalyst thing has been weird because you have apps that can technically run on both but even apple's own first party apps if you open like the news app or the apple tv app on your mac it's just weird it's weird to see this ios device or rather this ios app on your mac and like I said before, like who, no one knows what the what the answer to that is. Are are these going to become more and more similar, where it's just really one OS that can do both things, or is it going to be just a different version of the Mac that we know today that uh, it's going to have these Apple processors? And may, I'm sure Apple has a future for the Mac in mind. They have a roadmap. They know what they're doing. It's nice to see their recommitment to pros with the 16 inch MacBook Pro and the new Mac Pro. Like obviously there is a game plan there, but I am so happy that I do not have to make that decision because I, I don't know what's best. I don't know if you, it's going to be so hard to try to serve two masters to try to serve two parties. I don't know what the, the best solution is that'll make everybody happy. Maybe there just isn't one that'll make everybody happy. Yeah. I think if we learned anything from Apple, it's that no matter what they do, someone's going to hate it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Especially now with this latest version of the iPad Pro, it makes so much more sense to me at least. Like no, like business dealings aside, I'm sure there's a ton of like financial and business reasons why they have to make certain decisions like with Intel and stuff like that. But all that aside, just from a product standpoint, 
I don't understand why Apple wouldn't just continue with the iPad Pro, continue with the Mac, and you know, maybe it'll take five years, maybe it'll take 10 years, but eventually they might kind of merge and you know, you'll just kind of have one interface. Because if you look at the iPad Pro with the Magic Keyboard, it is an ARM-based Mac with Catalyst apps, basically. Like, there's really not that much different with it. I don't know. I feel like the the talk of this ARM-based Mac, like, in, besides this rumor that you just brought up, kind of had died down for the last year. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much more that picks up if these reports are true. And I think that, you know, Apple, if the day ever comes, which it's rumored they you know, the day is coming that they're going to release Xcode and Final Cut Pro 10 on the Mac, that would be a big public display from Apple to show their commitment to the iPad OS as the future because they've yet to do that. And I think that that almost is limiting the iPad in a way that, you know, they're making it more like a computer. They brought the trackpad support. Uh, the Magic Keyboard shows exactly how committed to that they are, uh, which is nice. But I think that they need to make some kind of public display that we trust this enough that we're we've put our time and resources to bring our flagship dev, um, software to iPad OS. I mean, could you imagine, you know, people are going out right now and buying Mac minis for what is it like a couple of 800, 900 bucks. Like people are buying Macs, renting Macs just because they need access to Xcode. Could you imagine what it'd be like if the $300 iPad could run Xcode and there was no need to buy a Mac? I mean, that's, that's another thing. Like is Apple, is, is Xcode on the iPad going to hurt Mac sales? I, this is we could go around forever. Like this is just a very complicated thing. I, I think that I, I believe a Apple is going to release Xcode and Final Cut for the for the iPad OS eventually. Who knows if that's going to be this year or not? But then it just opens up a whole other can of worms about you know what is what's the future of both lines? I guess we're just going to go in circles <laughs> forever on this. I guess. Yeah, I mean it's obviously not a technical limitation these this this hardware is powerful enough to do both of those things it's more just i guess it's more of a what apple thinks is most important right now and we don't really have that answers i hope that with wwdc we'll get more of that answer um because it, let, let's say this if during wwdc this year apple talks about ipad os 14 and basically they're like it's got new wallpapers you can arrange the apps a little bit differently on the screen but that's about it then I think that's kind of our answer for now. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we gave you we gave you what we think is uh, good enough for the iPad Pro for now. But if they do what I think we're all hoping they do, and they're like, like you said, double down. Like, we've got Pro apps. You can code on this now. You can create an iPad app on your iPad. If they do that kind of stuff, I think that'll that'll speak a lot to what Apple thinks the future is going to be. I mean, the 2020 iPad Pro, all of them have six gigs of RAM. Six gigs of RAM, especially when you consider like, doesn't like, I mean, how much RAM does the iPhone SE have? Like two gigs? Three I gigs. I say three, three gigs. gigs. Like the power of that A13 processor shines with basically as little amount as RAM as possible, especially when you have like Samsung phones and OnePlus that have like 12 and 16 gigs of RAM. Six gigs and of RAM. And still have issues sometimes. Right. <laughs> Six gigs of RAM with an A13 should be beast mode for Xcode. I, I, my, my dream is that final cut on the iPad Pro. I just, I, there is this dream I have to just be able to sit down and edit on an iPad Pro and just be able to run final cut on there. And even if it was like a little more limited, like our favorite uh, plugins like for motion VFX don't work on there. I, I get that. Like maybe there's some kind of incompatibility, but to be able to do like, you know, base cuts and be able to do 
70% besides all the special effects, that would just be so cool. And I, I really hope that WWDC is our answer to that. And like you said, it's going to be very telling what they do this year because if it's just wallpapers and a little bit of fresh paint, then the answer is unmentioned. The answer is we gave you trackpad support. Shut up for a little bit. We're working on other stuff. If it's pro apps, then that's a clear answer that you can kind of see Apple is prioritizing this more than uh, maybe some would hope they would. You know, we're in between. We we just got the new products, and now we have another month before we get to see what these new products can do with the latest software. This is always kind of the interesting time where you know you start getting a little antsy for the new software because I think for a lot of for a lot of people, and especially for me, that new software matters a heck of a lot more than the new hardware. So I'm I'm excited. I mean, we haven't even talked about the fact that this is going to be a very different WWDC because, I mean, California is not going to be open uh, for that, most likely. So that's uh, there's a lot of questions coming up into WWDC in June. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what happens. Obviously, we've talked about, you know, it's going to be remote only. That's going to be super fascinating to see how Apple pulls us off. But... You know, we haven't seen a whole lot of leaks for iOS 14 and iPadOS, so I'm really hoping that maybe, you know, I saw a quote from Tim Cook at the earnings call uh, this Thursday that they, they said, you know, our heads are down, we're working on new products, we're doing our best. You know, obviously there might be some delays because of, you know, coronavirus and stuff, but I, I really hope that this is the year that, man, iOS 14, iPadOS, they knock it out of the park and these are really big updates because we, we really have not seen big updates in iOS in a while. It's been a couple of years since we saw a really big update. I'm hoping this is the year. Yeah, no, I agree. That is uh, what I am looking forward to for sure. Something new, just a fresh coat of paint. That's really what I'm looking for. But I mean, that's pretty much all I think we can talk about. Like like we said up front, if you want to ask us a question about anything, you tech support, or you just want to leave us a comment. I mean, whatever you want to do, we have that phone number and that you can give us a call leave a voicemail, give us a text. And I think we maybe should mention this a little bit more, but you'll actually be featured on the episode. So we'll play it back and you, we can kind of almost have a conversation here with you on the episode. One of these days we will do like a podcast uh, recording live and get you guys in the chat and we can interact. Maybe like post WWDC, we can do like that week. We do like a like YouTube a live or something. Yeah, something. We'll, we want to get you guys involved. We'd love to make this more of a conversation uh, than just you listening to us talk for an hour or so. Uh, definitely uh, give that number a call. Give it a text. Follow us on social. We appreciate it. And like Matt said, rate the podcast because it really does help and it helps us uh, become more discoverable to others in uh, the podcast platform of their choice. Yeah, so I think until uh, next week, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you then. See you next week.